put out your porch light, draw your curtains tight, and get ready for another night of Kentucky Deceased. episode of Kentucky Deceased Hauntings of Frankfurt. This is our third episode in the series in the end of our second week, meaning we only have one more week of great content to bring you. But the great news is that this last week is jam-packed with things. So just as a little preview, next Wednesday we're going to have Julia Gabbard from Liberty Hall come on and talk about the Gray Lady of Liberty Hall. Friday of next week, we have a very special audio archival treat brought to us by Joe Carter. Thank you very much, Joe. And next weekend, we have a two-part special series finale that is the original audio from the first presentation of the Murder and Mayhem tour. Now, just as a little primer for that, it is very long, so we're splitting it up into two distinct episodes so that we don't wear you out right away. And these episodes will be released on Saturday and Sunday. We're really excited by the feedback and the responses we've gotten for the podcast so far. So thank you so much to everyone who has let us know that you're listening. And we really appreciate everyone who has shared this podcast. You make doing this possible and fun. I have one other update before we get started with the episode for today, and that is at the end of Wednesday's episode, I teased that there was a really exciting update to the story about the Ouija board sessions in Frankfurt in the 1960s, and this is definitely the case. After I recorded and released that audio, I had an even longer and more amazing and jaw-dropping meeting with the person who uh, did those sessions and recorded those notes. And it, I can't even, I can't even do the meeting justice. I'm, I'm not just saying that it really did blow my mind. And what ultimately ended up happening was that this person took the notes that I had on display as well as all the notes that were still available in the file home so that they could refer, view not only their notes, but also all the other information that they had documented during this period of time, because it turns out that it was over a period of years that they were having ongoing communications with the supernatural. So I know on Wednesday I teased that I was going to release an update episode next week, and that still may happen, but what's looking more likely now is that we're going to tease it out into several encore-style episodes, as it were. So Please sit tight, know that I haven't forgotten that promise, and that things are still very much developing. However, you are probably not here to hear all about Ouija boards again. You're probably here to hear more stories about Frankfurt. And this thematic approach that we're taking for today is all about storytellers. And I have lined up three incredibly wonderful storytellers who are going to be sharing stories, some of which are fabricated, some of which are true, some of which are based on half-truths. 
really depends on uh, who you ask and how you ask them. So I leave that up to you to make those decisions for yourself. Like Wednesday's episode, I'm going to let these stories and these storytellers speak for themselves. But I wanted to uh, go ahead and thank everybody and, and talk a little bit about what they're doing and then get right into the episode and let our last storyteller close out the episode. And I, I promise you'll see or hear why. Up first, we have local playwright, storyteller, author, and truly a, an amazing jack-of-all-trades, Jerry Deaton, who will be reading us a story from his Bloody Tales of Breathit book, which we are selling a limited release of autographed copies down in our gift shop. So if you love his story, which I know you will, I really encourage you to come on by and get one. He has signed all of those for you lovely audience members. I am not just saying this because I am putting together this podcast, but getting to listen to Jerry's story impacted my week in a way I was unprepared for. So I, I know that you will enjoy it, and I'm so excited that he made himself available to share it with all of you. After Jerry's story, we have a story from Cece Mitchell of the Far Side Farm. Cece wrote me several weeks ago with a printed version of this story that she first shared while eating at Gibby's several years ago. And this story is amazing and it will make you nostalgic, if nothing else. Probably a little bit scared along the way. CC did request that we dedicate this story to Kaz, Izzy, and Isabella. They were the first to hear this story, and I think it's important that they know that CC wanted to make this available for them. So thank you, CC, and thank you, Kaz, Izzy, and Isabella. Last but most definitely not least, we have Russell Kennedy, storyteller, tour guide, and personality extraordinaire. If you have had the honor to go on Visit Frankfurt's bourbon walking tour led by Colonel E.H. Taylor, wink, wink, then you will have interacted with Russ and you will have gotten to hear his amazing ability to tell stories. Russ told me two stories, so I decided to intersperse them between Cece and Jerry's story and then bookend uh, Cece's story too. So you'll get to hear Russ twice, so don't be surprised when his voice kicks back in at the end. As always, a huge thank you to the Capital City Museum staff, board, and volunteers for everything that you do. And thank you to wonderful listeners like you who make what we do possible. Now, on to the real reason we're all here. Let's listen to some stories. Well, everybody on the creek knew it when a neighbor got a telephone call. The signals got crossed in that little box the phone company hung up on a pole just up the road, and all our phones give off this little short half ring. That's the way it was on Freeman's Fork in 1959, because we was all on the same party line. But it weren't no big deal, because we never knowed anything different. Matter of fact, we considered ourselves to be amongst the lucky. Our old black phone was alive day and night with people telling their business all right there for everybody else to hear. And Mommy was as bad as anybody to listen in. She'd sit up the hallway with the phone receiver pinned to her ear, 
her little hand cupped over the mouthpiece, taking in every word. And that's how we'd find her every day around noon when Mary Sandlin and Alty Smith had called one another up to gossip. Them two old sisters lived within shouting distance of one another, but they'd still tie up the line every day for hours. Sometimes you'd have to ask them to get off so you could make a call, and they'd snub up and get mad. When they did that, Mommy'd say, Well, Alta and Mary acts just like they strung the lines on the poles themselves. Now, it was always easy to tell when Mary Sandlin was listening in. She made a scratchy whistling sound when she breathed in and out through her nose. Daddy said it made that noise because it was broke from getting stuck in everybody else's business. Sometimes she'd sneeze and try to muffle it, but it just ended up sounding like a trumpet. Her sister Alty was a little better, but still yet, you could always hear her little chihuahua dog muffin a yipping in the background. Now our bunch was always careful about what we said, because somebody was always listening in. You could tell by that little click the phone made when they picked up their receiver, or when they hung it up, bored with what you was saying. Now I have to admit, Mommy was a pro at listening in, and we got a kick out of watching her. She'd look around the house to see if any of us was watching. Then she'd slip off down the hall like we didn't know what she was doing. Same old routine every time. The little wooden phone bench was rickety, and she'd ease down on it so as not to make it squeak, but it always did. Then she'd lay her hand on the phone receiver for a few, sec- for a few seconds and lift it off the cradle real gentle, like she's picking eggs out of a hen's nest. We could see her in the shadows a little way up the hall, and it weren't no secret that she always acted like it was. Well, sometimes me and my sister would get noisy, and she'd swat at us with her hand to make us be quiet. And if we was mad at her over something, we'd run up and down the hall yelling and screaming to give her away. And that's when she'd put the phone back down on the hook real quick and go outside and cut a switch off of the forsythi bush. Well, that old party line stayed with us way up into the 1970s, long after everybody else in the county got their private line. We just carried on like always with our old black phones and access to everybody else's business. But now the party line weren't all bad. When news got out that a neighbor was sick or in some kind of trouble, somebody would usually show up with whatever they needed. Like that time in 63 when we lost our backer crop to the flash flood. I reckon everybody on the creek knowed it when Luther Deaton from the bank called up that fall wanting paid, and we never had no money. Well, two days later, a fruit jar with $47.16 showed up on the back porch. And that was the only time in my life I ever see Daddy with tears in his eyes. Nobody never took claim for it or mentioned it again, but it sure saved our hides. Well, long about 1973, I married Leslie Strong, and we moved over on to Wick. We lived there in a trailer for two years till Daddy passed in 75. And after that, we moved back to the old home place to be with Mommy. By then, she'd been listening in for so many years that sometimes she'd take liberties, and it was plain to see that her skills were starting to fade. 
Like one night, mommy, or one night, Veda Deaton's son took the croup real bad, and Veda was talking to somebody on the phone about it. Well, mommy forgot herself, I reckon, and she just joined right in the conversation. She told them to put vinegar on a brown paper bag and wrap it around that boy's neck before he went to bed that night. I heard her say, you're welcome, right before she hung up. So I reckon they thanked her, and we all got a good laugh out of that one. Well, progress finally came to Freeman's Fork, and in the summer of 1980, we all got our private lines. The men from the phone company worked every day for a week installing little boxes on our houses and putting equipment up on telephone poles. By Friday week, the phone men had that little junction box down off its pole and was gone. And so was the party line. Well, the first week or two after that, Mommy still went through her listening-in routine. She'd pick up the phone around noon because that's what she'd done every day for more than 20 years. But now, all she could hear was the cold buzz of a dial tone. She never really said much about it, but I could tell she didn't like this new arrangement. I got to thinking about it one day, and I realized Mommy hadn't actually used the phone for very much in the party line days. She'd mostly listened in. After we'd had separate lines, I come home from work early one day and found her sitting in the dark up the hallway on that little bench. Bless her heart, I reckon she's sort of embarrassed when she realized I'd seen her, and she just kind of wandered up the hallway back to her bedroom. But now as far as me, I didn't mind the change. I didn't need to know that Alty's left foot was bigger than the right. And if Brenda Sue Gabbard wanted to take up with a married feller from over on Cane Creek, then she could have at it. I weren't going to miss that Harold boy trying to court Letch Turner's daughter neither over on Sebastian's branch. After they got through calling each other Sweetie Pie and Honey Bun, they ran out of things to say pretty quick. So they mostly just sat there and breathed back and forth at one another. No, sir, I weren't going to miss that at all. But now the old folks, they missed it. It had been a big part of their lives here on Freeman's Fork for an awful long time. Well, Mommy seemed to get over the party line being gone and eventually moved on to other things. She took to doing crossword puzzles and playing solitaire. But mostly, she started watching the days of our lives. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives, she'd say as her story ended each day, repeating the show's opening theme. But I knew she missed listening in. Well, by and by, Mommy's memory began to slip, and we could see old age was setting in. It was just little things at first, like what channel her story came on, or if Thursday was the day we drove over to the Boonville Shopwise to get her groceries. But it got worse over time, and I'd find her standing in the hallway at night, not knowing where she was, or sometimes who I was. And that's when strange things started to happen. One night we'd not been in bed 30 minutes, when the old black phone up the hall give off a little half ring like it used to with the party line. We never thought much about it and just figured somebody had called and hung up real quick. Practical jokes was pretty big then, and somebody had called that very day and told us our cow was in their garden. Well, when we told them we didn't have no cow, they laughed and said, well, we ain't got no garden, and hung up the phone. Now, I never did get that one, but they sure thought it was funny.
Well, in a few minutes, the phone gave off another little half ring, and we heard Mommy coming down the hallway. We could tell she stopped at the phone because we heard her sit down on the squeaky old bench. I stuck my head out the door, and there she sat, just like she used to, with her hand over the mouthpiece like she was a-listening in. I watched her for a few minutes, and before long she hung up and wandered back up the hall. I went on to bed, never thought no more about it. Well, the next morning we was all sitting around the breakfast table eating biscuits and gravy. That's when Mommy mentioned that Mary Sandlin had died last night. Now, we hadn't heard nothing about that. She was up in her 80s, and we knew she'd been over in the hospital over to Hazard, but nobody had called or been by the house to say anything. Well, Mommy, I don't reckon, I said after she finished telling us. Well, that's what Alty was saying on the phone last night, she said. Now, that sort of took me by surprise. So I looked at her and I said, Well, Mommy, Alty's been dead for almost six years. You know that. Surely she weren't on the phone last night. Mommy leaned her head down and fiddled with the napkin in her lap. Before long, she got up and wandered into the living room with her coffee and sat down to start her puzzle. She couldn't really work them anymore or play solitaire, but she still went about it like she always had. Well, about an hour later, the phone rang, and it was Eileen Thompson from up the creek. She was calling to tell us that Mary Sandlin had died last night along about 11 o'clock. I asked her if she was sure, and she said it was so. Now, I never mentioned what Mommy said, and we visited there a few more minutes before we hung up. After that, I went back into the living room where Mommy was and told her the news. She just kind of looked up at me, never said no more about it. Well, a few days went by, and they buried Mary Sandlin. We went to her funeral around at the church, but we didn't go on to the graveyards afterwards because Mommy didn't feel up to it. Well, sometime that night, way after we'd gone to bed, the phone gave off another one of those little short half rings. It woke me up, and I thought I heard Mommy walk down the hall and sit down on the little bench. Well, I picked up the receiver on the phone next to our bed, and there was a dial tone on it. So I hung it back up and walked out into the hall to see about Mommy. I barely caught the white tail of her gown as she turned the corner going back to her room. The old black phone was off the hook, just laying there on the little bench. I couldn't help wondering what was going on, so I picked up the receiver and put it to my ear. And sure as a world, there was two old women a-talking on the other end. Well, I dropped that phone like it was a snake, and I ran back to bed. The hair on my neck and arms was a-standing straight up. Leslie thought I was crazy when I told her what had just happened, but she must have believed me because she was too scared to go hang that old phone back up. Pretty soon it started making that beep, beep, beep noise, the one it makes if you don't put it back on the cradle, and we figured whoever was on it was gone. Well, the next day, Mommy never got out of bed at all. When I went to check on her, she seemed confused, and all she said was, like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. Things was getting pretty scary around the house. That old black phone up the hall give off that little half ring all through the day. And Mommy was back in her room talking to somebody that weren't there. 
At least we couldn't see them if they was. Well, long about three o'clock, that old black phone started to ring full rings, just like somebody was calling us. I walked over to the one on the kitchen wall, and even though it weren't ringing, I answered it. They weren't nobody there, just about a dial tone. But that old black phone, it just kept on a ringing. It weren't going to stop, so I eased up the hall and sat down on that old phone bench. When I put the receiver to my ear, it sounded like more than a dozen people was on that line, all talking at the same time. Some of the voices sounded familiar, but I couldn't really place them. I sat there listening for a minute, but before long, a loud static set in. Then all of a sudden, that old black phone just went dead. I hung it back up on its cradle and stood up from the old phone bench. When I did, it gave off that same old squeak, squeak like when Mommy was sitting on it. I walked back up the hall and peeked into her room from the door. Mommy was laying there all still and peaceful-like, and I knew right then that she was gone. Well, it's been 15 years since Mommy passed, and we've got one of those new cell phones like everybody likes to carry around. But that old black phone's still up the hallway on that rickety old bench. We just never had the heart to take it down. Funny thing, though, it ain't never rung once since the day Mommy died. Oh, it's still hooked up to the wall. And the phone man looked at it and said he couldn't find no shorten or nothing. But it's dead as a doornail. I guess the sand done passed through the hourglass on it, just like it did on Mommy. And on that old party line, too. My name is Russ Kennedy. I'm a teller of tales and a spinner of yarns. This is the story of Ada Farmer's Boarding House. Ada Farmer's Boarding House, still here today, it's on Wapping Street in Frankfort, Kentucky. And uh, for the most part, Ada Farmer's Boarding House was a, a home for, for single fellas, uh, fellas without a family. That brings us to a gentleman named Henry Denhart, Henry H. Denhart. He was an old bachelor. Denhart was a longtime servant of the Commonwealth of Kentucky. He served four years as Kentucky's adjutant general under Governor Ruby Lafoon. And uh, he was lieutenant governor for four years under... Um, Governor Fields, they called him Honest Bill from Olive Hill, but Denhart was, was his lieutenant governor. And back in those days, the seat of state government was on Broadway, what uh, many folks might have known at one time as Market Street, but it was Broadway, and, and that was where the state capital was, and, and that's where Denhart worked, and Ada Farmer's boarding house was about two, maybe two and a half blocks from there. So it was very convenient. At the end of his term as lieutenant governor, he retired. Makes sense. A lot of people spend their whole life working toward retirement, but he retired and he moved to Oldham County, Kentucky, LaGrange, Kentucky. 
as it were. And that was his retirement home. And there he struck up a relationship with a lady named Verna Gar Taylor. Verna Gar Taylor. What a beautiful name. Well, it seemed that things were going swimmingly between Den Hart and Verna Gar Taylor. But evidently, along the way, something happened. Because one morning, her body was discovered on an old, seldom-used country road in neighboring Henry County. And she had a bullet wound. She was dead as dead can be with a hole in her head right behind her right ear. It wasn't long before they pointed the guilt toward good old Henry Denhart, although evidence was lacking. These were in the days before CSI. If you didn't have an eyewitness, you didn't have much. They had a body with a hole in its head that happened to be Henry Denhart's girlfriend. It wasn't long before Henry was arrested and charged with her murder and famously stood trial there in a charming old courthouse in Oldham County, Kentucky. It's still there. It's on the old courthouse square. You remember those in the old towns downtown and the street goes around it and all. Well, he was tried for the murder of Verna Gar and lacking evidence, what little evidence they had was purely circumstantial. His trial ended in a hung jury. There was no conviction. Well, the part we didn't talk about was the fact that good old Henry Denhart was a drunk. And, and that's about as polite as you can put it, I guess, polite terms. He would be an alcoholic. But much like our beloved Ulysses S. Grant, he liked a little drink all day, every day, 24-7, 365. The official records indicate that he was highly inebriated at the time of his arrest. Likely was inebriated at the time he and, and Bernagar Taylor had a falling out. But anyway, following, following his hung jury and lack of conviction for her murder. It's said that he was standing on the street out in front of his hotel one morning when Vernagar Taylor's three highly irritated brothers rolled up and they were locked and loaded and ready to avenge their sister's death. And when all was said and done, Poor old Henry Denhart looked like low-grade Swiss cheese. Now, interesting, according to research in Ann D'Angelo's book, Dark Highway, Denhart was known to be a heavy drinker. 
He relied on drink to manage his stress. She writes, and I think this is humorous, she writes that he was quite possibly an alcoholic. Yeah. <laughs> but as we know, on the day of his arrest, the time of his trial, he was a highly inebriated fellow. It's amazing uh, how sometimes overconsumption can lead to an untimely end. The Story of the Old Lady of Broadway Long, long ago, there were residences all along the north side of Broadway in Frankfurt on either side of the old Capitol building. All the kids who lived in the area walked everywhere back in those days, to and from school and to hang out with their friends in town and at the river. All the kids knew to walk on the south or the town side of Broadway because there was a mean old lady on the block where now sits Buddy's and Gibby's restaurants. The kids were afraid of the old lady who sat on her front porch, and she would occasionally stand up and point her old crooked finger and yell at them. Being kids, the children would sometimes holler back at the old lady and taunt her while running as fast as they could to get further away from her and her house. But as brave as the kids acted when yelling back, they were all terrified of the lady. One Friday, as the kids gathered early to walk together to school, two of their friends didn't join them that morning. Nor were those two siblings in school that day. At the end of school, when the kids got back to their homes along Broadway, running fast on the opposite side of the street from the old lady, they realized that the old lady wasn't on her porch that day. The children knocked on their absent friend's doors on up the street, but there was no answer. The next day, there was still no answer at the friend's home, and it seemed that those children and their family had just disappeared. Even stranger, the old lady who sat for all those years on her front porch yelling and pointing at the children, was gone too. No one ever knew what happened to the children or their family or to the old lady either. The lady and the family up the street were never seen or heard from again. But still to this day, many of the locals who know the story of the old lady of Broadway cross over the street on that block, or they walk real fast and try to never be alone on the north side of the street, because you never know when the old lady of Broadway may return and point her old crooked finger at you. Hi, this is Russ Kennedy again, and before we go, <laughs> I've got one more story I want to share with you. There's things I think about at this time of year, especially as we approach Halloween, and uh, I think about all the, the stories of strange goings-on, especially here in our, in our town, in our county, in our region of Kentucky. Every now and then, wild animal stories surface. 
And that goes back to the beginning of recorded Kentucky history up to today. Someone, someone or some group of people is forever hearing wild animal sounds in the night. And Frankfort and Franklin County are no exception. Now, most often, those stories tend to have a very simple explanation. Sometimes not. Sometimes there's no explanation at all. Often, you'll hear that it's some kind of crossbred hybrid animal roaming the countryside or the circus train wrecked and all the animals got out and there's lions and tigers and bears roaming. Oh my. Um, and then sometimes that screaming that you hear typically at night when animals feed turns out to be nothing no more than the neighbor's cat. It's interesting. I think back to the time, it was about the time that Kentucky State Capitol was being built. It goes back to the very early 1900s. Out Schweitzer Way. Now, Schweitzer is a little burg between Frankfort and Georgetown. But there were stories of an animal that screamed in the night. And typically, those screams would begin around sundown, maybe a little later. And they would last up into the night, maybe two or three in the morning. And then they were gone. Then they were gone. They were over. And people obviously were quite concerned over what in the world could it possibly be making that sound. What did it sound like? Well, there were many, and I say many, uh, very credible people uh, who said the sound remind, reminded them of a hog caller, someone who would be, would be calling hogs. And it would sound like it were two or three fields or hollers away. And some people said, well, I'm going to define it a little further than that. It sounded like, um, like Pooji. Uh, and it was a scream, Pooji, Pooji, Pooji. What is that? What in the world could it be? Well, was it an escaped animal? Was it a mountain lion? Some kind of cat, some kind of, was it a bear? Nobody knew. They hadn't heard anything like that. And as you can imagine, they were quite troubled. And it went on. It went on for a good while. And it so happened that, that one night, um, there was a, a black fellow. They say he was a large, large man, black fellow that lived in the Schweitzer area. And for whatever reason, heaven only knows, for whatever reason, he found it necessary to run an errand after dark. The sun had set, the sky was darkening, and 
He had to go somewhere. And as the account in the Frankfurt roundabout newspaper goes, he had not been gone too long when they heard the sounds again. They heard it again. And naturally, they were concerned for the man who had, had gone on his errand. Well, people had always referred to whatever this was. Let's call it a critter, for lack of a better term. The newspaper called it a something. Called it a something. Folks in Schweitzer called it the dog eater. The dog eater, because it seemed that every time they heard the sounds of this hog collar or poogee or whatever it was, <laughs> somebody's dog wound up dead, <laughs> chewed up in pieces. It just happened to coincide. The dog eater. So here's our friend, this large black fellow, doing a good deed, running the errand that he needed to do. And the poogee starts, and it goes on, and it goes on, and it's typical, it ended early morning. But our friend didn't come back, never made it back. So naturally, naturally the next day they set out on a search to find him, and they did in a hollow, not too far from where he'd left, in pieces. His arms and legs were separated from the rest of his body, and obviously he was as dead as dead gets. And interestingly enough, the something or the critter or the dog eater came to be known as the people eater. Even more interesting, they never heard the sounds again. Whatever it was left the area or died or whatever might happen. But after our friend lost his life, that was the last we ever heard of the, of the dog eater. We'll never know what it was, what it might have been. Was it a hybrid? Was it an escape critter? Was it an exotic? We don't know. We don't know. But still to this day, from time to time, in modern times, people will, will report strange sounds in the night. Strange sounds in the night, made all the more scary by the darkness.